You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And you know what we do by now. Three topics every single Monday. We try to keep it around 20 minutes, the average time that you're in the car commuting to work. And we guarantee you will be smarter when you arrive on this edition of Commute. Most of us determine what gets thrown out of our refrigerator based on the expiration date printed on the food. But how reliable is that exactly? If you're famous, are you ever allowed to just stop being famous? In 2014, Richard Simmons tried, and the world wouldn't let him. On June 1st, 1999, a program took the music industry by storm and would spark a change in how we forever listened to music. That's right, we're talking Napster. Ah, yes, Napster. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So, Dave, if I were to come over to your house right now and open up your refrigerator, uh, what what kind of thing? What am I walking into there? Well, my wife and I have very different taste buds. Um, some people would even say that I'm a somewhat picky eater, even though I, I vehemently disagree with that. Um, but when it comes to things uh, having an expiration date on them, she really doesn't think about it too much. So if there's anything in our fridge that has expired, it's something that only she eats. I am very against eating or drinking, consuming any kind of food that's past the expiration date. Well, this segment's for you, then. You won't change me. (laughs) I'm going to try my best. Uh, Well, I know for me, every so often, uh, you know, I go through my refrigerator and I find things shoved in the back or in drawers, and then I have to make a call on whether or not to get rid of it. And, you know, I, like many Americans, make this call by using the expiration date as a guide. And that system on the surface is just pretty simple, right? Here's a date. Are you past the date? That means it goes in the garbage. And the statistics on this subject, though, tell a very inescapable fact, and that is that Americans waste a lot of food. In fact, 40% of all food produced in America goes to a landfill or is wasted, and the average American family throws out between 1365 and $2,275 worth of food, according to a 2013 Harvard study. And not only is it just bad economics, but it's bad for the environment. 25% of fresh water in the U.S. goes to food never eaten, and 21% of everything in our landfills is food. On top of this, 42 million people in the U.S. live with regular hunger issues. So it's clear we have a problem on our hands here as a nation. Uh, Researchers have found that expiration dates printed on food very rarely actually correspond to food actually spoiling. And the issue is combined with the fact that most average people just don't believe that they have enough information or expertise to determine if food is good or not. So they just follow the directions. And you know, Dave, if you think about it, logically, the problem would be relatively easy to fix, right? And ultimately, everyone stands to benefit from the producers to the consumers. Just the issue here, though, is that overhauling this requires overhauling our entire psychology that we have spent years creating. 
Uh, expiration dates started appearing on labels in the decades that followed World War II, as many Americans were shifting away from small local grocers to large supermarkets with many more options. And producers realized that shoppers kind of liked having these dates on their labels, so they started printing them in more detail. But there never really was any consistency among products on how that date was decided. Alyssa Wilkinson, in an article for Vox that provides a lot of the information in this segment, says it this way. While the federal government made some attempts beginning in the 1970s to enact legislation that would standardize what those labels mean across the country, they failed. Instead, the burden fell on the state and sometimes local legislatures, which passed laws that varied widely. One state might never require labels. Another might mandate that the freshness label on milk have a date of 21 days after bottling. And a third state may have set the same date at 14 days. Dave, I know what you're thinking here. This is a scam to get us to buy more food, right? But when you do the math, it doesn't make a lot of sense because who benefits from this? Customers don't benefit. Grocers lose money when they have to throw things out. Farmers lose money. But the real answer here is that manufacturers print the date by which they believe their product tastes the best. In a way, this is a way of protecting the brand. If you buy a type of yogurt, for instance, that is slightly past that date and it doesn't taste as good, as a type of yogurt that is a week more fresh, you will probably buy that yogurt going forward, right? And supermarkets purposefully fill their shelves to look packed because it sends a message that this is a successful store. We see packed shelves and freezers, and subliminally, that is a sign that this is a place we want to shop. Many states have laws on top of it all preventing anything past an expiration date from being donated to food banks or shelters, so most of this extra food just ends up in the garbage. And studies have shown that standardizing food expiration dates has an economic value of an estimated $1.8 billion, not to mention just the removal of red tape for food donation. Although the real momentum for this has never really been achieved in Congress, what you have to realize here is that this is not an issue we can just legislate away. A major cultural shift needs to happen here. We need to learn to trust our senses of smell in addition for asking for better labels and try to lean less on these expiration dates as such a hard deadline, but see them as much more flexible than many of us do. Okay, well, two things to add here. Number one, if you mean to tell me that these expiration dates are just arbitrary, then why is my bread that's that's supposed to be good until tomorrow, why is it rock hard today? Point number two, the real waste is going on at fast food chains. So about 10 years ago, a friend of mine and I, I don't want to say his name to incriminate him, we went and uh, and watched the employees at a Little Caesars close the Little Caesars, put the remaining hot and ready's in the dumpster. We drove to the dumpster, got one, tasted great. They were just going to waste it. I, I would imagine. Is that stealing? <laughs> I would imagine that you're more of a like, take the loaf of bread, spin it, and tuck it under, and that's probably why it went bad rather than use the twist tie. I am a tuck it under. That's actually a good point. I'll try that next week. I'll report back. All right, Jay. On February the 15th, that's the day after Valentine's Day for you lovebirds, of 2014, fitness legend Richard Simmons did not show up to teach his usual class at the now-closed and very appropriately named gym, Slimmons, in Beverly Hills, California. Simmons didn't answer calls. He didn't return emails. He didn't return texts. And by all accounts, he completely vanished 
from the public eye. Jay, this sudden and shocking disappearance led to the 2017 hit podcast, Missing Richard Simmons, in which self-proclaimed former friend of Simmons, a guy by the name of Dan Tabersky, explored the mystery surrounding the sudden exit. So before I get too far, though, what is your relationship with Richard Simmons? Did you pump weights as a kid to the famous Simmons workout video, sweating to the oldies like I did? did? Did you happen to listen to the podcast, Missing Richard Simmons? So they made us work out to Richard Simmons videos in school. Uh, I remember like it was a station at gym. We also had to do Tybo. What was the guy, the Tybo uh, guy's Billy name? Blanks, like, yeah, we had to do yeah. Tybo with Billy Blanks. So, so yeah, and I did listen to the podcast and I was super into it because it kind of came out weekly. And at the time it was kind of like uh, the podcast Serial where it was kind of coming out live and people yeah. were doing research in real time and then kind of reporting in every week. Yeah, and it's actually been compared to uh, to Serial as a podcast that redefined the way that we have investigative journalism now in uh, our medium of podcast. But Jabe, let's quickly chronicle who Richard Simmons is and why this podcast and the mysterious disappearance became a national sensation. Eccentric, flamboyant, energetic, Richard Simmons, whose birth name is Milton, by the way, rose to national prominence both in the fitness world and in pop culture in the 1970s and the 1980s. But Simmons wasn't always the springy, skinny man you may remember as a child. Simmons was barely five foot seven and weighed almost 270 pounds when he was young. In fact, it's rumored that an anonymous note left on his windshield saying that his weight would eventually kill him and keep him from living a very long life is said to have led to his lifelong commitment to fitness. It's like a butterfly We should effect. go to the mall. Yeah, we should go to the mall and just leave notes on every no, single we, car. We should not do that. Simmons' personal brand, though, grew by leaps and bounds in the 2000s, driven by a combination of things. Gyms like Slimmons that catered to the unhealthy, consumer products like the aforementioned Sweat into the Oldies, like you watched in school, and recurring appearances on soap operas, late-night talk shows, and national advertising campaigns. Jay Simmons was nationally known and loved, but at the same time, people didn't really know much about him as a person. There were long-running rumors about his sexuality, his gender, but these rumors were never really addressed by Simmons. He claimed to have very few friends, and aside from his three Dalmatians and his two live-in maids, Simmons lived alone. In a 2012 interview with Men's Health, he was actually quoted as saying the following, When the king gets depressed, he doesn't call for his wife or the cook. He turns to the little man with the pointed hat and says to the court jester, Make me laugh. I am the court jester. So all of this intrigue and mystery only added to the public fascination over his 2014 disappearance. Rumors were aplenty. Some of the most interesting ones, Jay, were that he was being held hostage by his housekeepers, that he was recovering from a secret major surgery, that he was transitioning into a woman, and that his dogs had passed away and it had sent him into such a great depression that he was now fat again and did not want to be seen in public. But, Jay, ultimately, it seems that Simmons just wanted some rest. The podcast prompted an LAPD welfare check to Simmons' house, where officers issued a statement in 2017 saying that Simmons was perfectly fine and just wanted to be left alone. 
Jay Simmons has since uploaded some old workouts to YouTube, and he's actually coming back around. He recently has signed a deal with Vizio Smartcast to start a new streaming television channel called Fuse Sweat that will include some of his old programming. But still, all of this begs the question, in our super connected world, are you ever allowed to just disconnect? I've heard it said that fame is the worst thing that can happen to a man. And for Richard Simmons, maybe that's exactly what led to this. I think just when someone in our society is famous and makes money off of being famous, I think that the collective thought is that that person owes us something. People just think that, you know, if you're on my TV screen, that I have a right to be in your life, right? Like I have a right to see what you're doing on Instagram, right? And, and people get mad. It's got to be more, it's got to be harder to be famous today than it ever has been ever. Well, it's easier to be famous too now <laughs> than, it, than it ever has been. And, and, right, in a way. And, and Jay Simmons is one of those larger than life type characters. And so there are tons of legendary stories about him. Obviously, and I'll end the segment with what I think is, is maybe my favorite. In 2004, Simmons was at Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport when a fellow passenger made a remark about his sweat into the oldies series of tapes, kind of making fun of him. According to a police report, the man spotted Simmons and shouted, Hey, everybody, it's Richard Simmons. Let's drop our bags and rock to the 50s, which is a really bad joke. But the heckling was so unappreciated by Simmons, he walked over to the man and slapped him in the face, earning himself a misdemeanor assault. Now, the case was settled and later dropped, but still slapped him in the face. <laughs> so, Dave, you and I are of an earlier age. We both graduated high school in the mid to late 2000s. Music was different when we were growing up uh, than it is now. Today, it's much more accessible than it was back then. You had to purchase a lot of it in physical Copies, and then along came a file sharing system called Napster. I remember when everybody was getting Napster, and something that's important to this story is that nobody had wireless internet back then. Everybody was on dial-up, so you had to earn downloading your illegal music. My first song I downloaded on Napster took five hours, Casey and JoJo, all my life. For me, uh, it was a similar situation. I think it took like multiple days to download, and I was trying to download a Nelly song, uh, and I think I ended up like, just kind of launching. Uh, I don't remember which one it was, That's probably but I think grammar. it ended up just like throwing a grenade into our family PC <laughs> and just sort of like infecting it with all kinds of viruses. But it was worth it. Let's talk about Napster. What is it, right? And, and how did it change the world that we live in today? So on June 1st, 1999, the music industry was changed forever with the release of Napster, a software program that was the project of a 19-year-old U.S. computer hacker named Sean Fanning and his friend Sean Parker. And here is how it worked. Napster would search your hard drive, list all MP3 files contained on it, and then allow those files to be shared across the internet with anyone else using the software. As Fanning himself put it, for the first time, this full history of recorded music was available online to everyone instantly. Now today, streaming is effortlessly at your fingertips. Napster was a little bit more complicated, though. Uh, Stephen Dowling in an article for the BBC describes the process like this. First, you had to download the software. You also had to mark the directory that you stored your music files as shared so that other Napster users could access it. 
Then you connected to the internet, fired up the Napster software, then typed in the name of the song or artist you were looking for. Napster would then connect you with other users who had a copy of that song, and that would allow you to download it. Now, Napster came to us in a time when record labels were as bloated and rich as they ever had been. In the year 2000, almost a billion CDs were sold at around $16 an album. But the issue was that many consumers were interested in only a few songs and ultimately had to shell out the cash for many that they had no intention of listening to on a package album. Napster was an industry-shattering solution. So the record label A&M was the first one to file a lawsuit against Napster. The band Metallica made headlines after taking Napster to court after finding an alternative mix of their song I Disappear on the service, a version that had never been released to the public. And on April 13th, 2000, Metallica filed a lawsuit for copyright infringement, racketeering, and unlawful use of digital audio interface devices against Napster and even tracked down the names of the 335,000 Napster users who shared this Uh, and asked Napster to ban them all, which they did. Uh, But the wider issue for the recording industry here is that their sue-first approach didn't really stop people from using music file-sharing software. It was sort of like when the genie got out of the bottle, there was no putting it back in. For years, the industry fought Napster in court and bled money in the process. Steve Knopper, who wrote a book on the topic called Appetite for Self-Destruction, The Spectacular Crash of the Record Industry in the Digital Age, says it this way. When they realized it was enabling mass piracy that could destroy their business, they dealt with file sharing almost exclusively through lawsuits and copyright protection. This was a costly error. None of those defenses worked, and the record executives spent four or five crucial years losing serious business to Napster before Steve Jobs came along with the iTunes store. Uh, It's my contention that record companies could have avoided much of this had they been smarter about dealing with Napster, if not licensing content to it directly, then just doing a better job of creating a competing cost-effective service rather than just stonewalling and treating the internet as a threat. Napster, while eventually shut down and replaced by other file-sharing software like LimeWire and Kazaa, changed the industry forever. Uh, The industry eventually learned to profit on how consumers want to buy music, but it took them nearly two decades to figure it out. In June of 2002, Napster officially filed for bankruptcy, and in their wake came YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, and others. And although the record industry's profits are on the rise, today they are only around half of their 1999 peak. I don't want to say his name, and now that I think about it, I haven't seen him in a while, so he might be in jail. But I grew up with a guy that was, he was on a list of guys we're going to sue. I mean, he was a major Napster player. He was probably on the top 50. But like I said, he could be in jail right now. I'm not sure. The people, the inmates are like, hey, what are you in for, man? And he's like, do you remember Napster? <laughs> They're like, wow, like we're going to beat up this guy and steal all his stuff. <laughs> he's, a, he's in here for file sharing. And you know what's so interesting about Napster 2J is uh, it, originally it came out when you know we were like in middle school and so the schools, the teachers had no idea how to stop it. They didn't know what it was. And so every school had Napster downloaded on the school computers. There was no filter to stop it. And so you know all the bad kids would download bad songs. Oh, yeah. I can't sing. Well, we're, we're a family show, so I can't sing them. How are you but. getting music on those computers? <laughs> I thought you were about to sing one of them. <laughs> no! No! <laughs> 
Oh, but that is it. Another week, another commute. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget, it helps us out a bunch to please rate, subscribe, and review the show. Do it right now if you haven't. We beg you, rate, subscribe, and review Commute, preferably on Apple Podcasts, but we would love for you to do it on your favorite podcast platform. Connect with us on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trapp. We'll see you next week.